Hey everyone, Coach Investor, you're back with Dave Lee. This is part two of a three-part series. So in this part, we're going to talk about why a CEO's ambition is a very, very crucial part of looking for that 10x for that next 100x investment. We're also going to talk about Square, Lemonade, all of that in this video. So stay tuned for that. If you haven't watched part one, it's obviously going to be linked down in the description below or in the top right corner. Without further ado, enjoy this interview. Now, I want to go back actually to the, the point you made about Stripe with the, the team being a great team. Developers love the country, the, the company. It's actually a bit like if you compare it to, to a sports team, like if you want to beat other sports teams, you have to have a very, very, very good team yourself to be able to beat other, other teams out there. I think it's the same with, with companies. If you think you have a great company, attract great engineers, attract great marketers, whatever to try and beat the other company. It's great to have a good idea, but if you don't have the personnel to actually outplay and outbuild all the other competitors out there, a bit like Tesla is doing, you really have no chance into outperforming everyone else. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I think also another miss kind of understood or underappreciated aspect that I'm constantly looking for in companies is the role of ambition. And I don't hear many people talking about this, but a lot of times ambition by the CEO is kind of related to this. I, in a way, that's the size of the fishbowl that that company is, is, mm -hmm. is in. And a lot of times the size of the fishbowl can determine the size of the fish, right? The company. <clears throat> so if you have a CEO and founder who has a say mediocre vision, and mediocre ambition of what they want to become, you're going to have some mediocre, mediocre sized fish in a mediocre sized fishbowl. So it's kind of obvious, right? It, it doesn't, I can explain this to a five-year-old, right? I can explain it to my kids and they would understand that concept, right? Um, if you have a CEO that has crazy ambitions, right? And their ambitions just completely, you know, dwarf, you know, any other CEO uh, ambitions in that industry or field, that means their fishbowl is huge, right? And the potential for that company, for that fish to grow into a big, huge fish is actually quite high. Yeah. Now you need to figure out, is this CEO and company legit? You know what I'm saying? Because they could be just a fraud. They could just be pie in the sky, just saying all this stuff. Like, And so you need to look at their track record say, okay, what have they done in the past? Like that's been crazy ambitious. And how do they do that? Look at their current plans. What's their strategy to fulfill these crazy ambitious plans? Look at the superiority of their product. If their product is just mediocre, then how are they going to achieve their, their, their goals, their ambitious ambition goals? It's just, it doesn't make sense. So a lot of things, these things have to line up. So, so it's kind of this, um, it's an interesting hack with investing rather than looking at it from, oh, let's look at their financials and their revenue. Let's look at the P over E ratio. Let's look at their balance sheet, which is all the cool stuff and important stuff. Let's hack this thing. If you're looking for truly the outsized winners, you know, the, the, the really the big fish, hack it for, it's, it, it comes down to first principles. What is the first principle of a huge company of the biggest winners, the decade winners, you know? Part of the first principle is the CEO needs that 
decade, that crazy generational ambition and vision. Without it, it's impossible, right? And that is kind of the starting point. And I think this isn't talked about much with investing is, A, look at that starting point. Which CEOs have the craziest ambition, right? The generational ambition. And then due diligence. Elon Musk's. Exactly, right? The Jeff Bezos. You could listen and hear what these guys are trying to do. Like, you know, I was listening to Jeff Bezos, you know, 15 years ago, probably 10, 15 years ago, actually more than 10 years ago, talking about, oh, you know, he wants, um, this is actually probably almost in the very beginning days of AWS, um, Amazon Web Services, where he's like, you know, I've been studying the electrical uh, services and utility grids and all this stuff. And in in history, history, looking hundreds of years, there have been special times where, you know, like utility-like functions have come about. And he's like, you know, the internet is one of these great opportunities. And he's like, I want to provide that utility-like function that just is the plumbing, you know, is the electric grid for the entire internet. And at that time, no one understood what he's, what the heck is he talking about, right? Because AWS, you know, web services, all this stuff was like, this is pre-2008 or so, yeah. probably 2005 or 2006, he's talking about this. And, um, and when I heard that, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're kidding me. Like Jeff Bezos is really on a different level. Like his ambition is, it's crazy. I'm just like, wow, he's catching things that no one's catching, but not just catching it. He is wanting to do it. He's wanting to go for it. Right. And people say, oh, how could he have caught, how could have you, how could have people caught Amazon early on? Hey, you know, maybe the whole paradigm of, how you analyze companies is wrong because people aren't even looking for the great companies. They're looking for just, you know, 50 companies to diversify. But if you're looking for the great companies, then you ask the question, how can I identify the great companies? And then you can ask the question, what is the, on first principle thinking, what is the core of what determines the, the generational company? And then you're going to look at the founder and you look at the ambition, right? And then you're going to look at some other things, the strategy and execution and product excellence, et cetera. But yeah, you flip the whole paradigm of analyzing companies around the whole goal of investing. And you've got a completely different model going on. And I mean, that's what I do. That's my channel. That's my, that's the reason why I do what I do. Cause I don't think people are talking about this. And I think maybe there's a little bit more people are talking about some of this, like, you know, stuff in the past year. And I hope, hopefully I've been part of that discussion too, but um, yeah, I, I think there's immense opportunity. Um, there's risks involved, but you know, I think there's wise ways where you can um, diversify in different ways. You could set aside a, a, a safer basket of assets for your retirement and treat that separately and then have a different set of baskets where you can use it more aggressively to pursue kind of these generational, you know, 10x opportunities. Yeah, no, sounds, sounds about right. I think people maybe overestimate or underestimate how easy it is actually to basically analyze a company. Don't need like a major in mathematics to, to do so. Just look from the bottom up, CEO, CFO, what the company's vision is. Look at their website. What are they actually doing? Are the people happy there? Like what's maybe test out the product? I think beginning to invest, I think Peter Lynch said it as, as well, is pretty easy. You go, do you understand the business? You can actually go, he, had, he did it with Dunkin' Donuts, went to the shop, Ask people, do they like what they eat? Do they like the coffee? Mm -hmm. Yes, no. I think it's pretty easy if people want to, to understand what, what a business is doing and what they want to be doing in, in the future. 
No, I think yeah. you, you said something uh, in your conversation with Ken uh, Chicken Genius about about Square that your conviction levels are not as high as as another company because you don't see maybe Jack Dorsey or the team wanting to accelerate and grow even faster than what they're doing now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it comes down to ambition, right? I mean, like, for example, Peter Lynch, you know, his books are great. I, I encourage people to read them, but I don't think he's he's dissecting finding generational opportunities in a first principle manner. I think he has certain pieces, but for example, I don't know if he's, he doesn't really catch on, I think, in my opinion, to the importance of ambition, right? Mm -hmm. And how grand um, their the scale of what they're goals are, right? And what that means to the founders. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of times traditional investing, they tend to be more numbers focused. It's more this traditional, you know, analyst thing where they're not um, sitting down with the management for hours and hours or looking at interviews. I think that's a, an advantage. I think any company right now that the CEO is public giving lots of interviews, you can kind of get a better sense of who this person is, right? What does he stand for? What are his goals? Like a great example is Elon Musk. People know his goals, right? It's pretty evident. He says, these are my goals, yeah. right? And you know what he stands for. And you can judge like how ambitious there's, those goals are, what his strategies are and what the products right, he's doing it for. And you can make an, a, a judgment for that. And I think, um, Yeah, with, with Square, um, and part of it also is um, uh, valuation too. Um, I, I look at that kind of closely and I use my own valuation approaches. And so, you know, um, my investment in Square was back when it was probably around 60 or 70 bucks mm -hmm. or something around there. Um, so it's tripled and um, and I haven't sold any of my Square. I just, I, I, I plan to keep it for, I don't know how long, but... Um, what I want to double down when I want to double down on a company and really just go for it is I want several things, you know, I want a decent valuation. I want, you know, to be super impressed by the company management, but also I want them to be the best in class, you know, in what they're doing. And I want them to have grand ambition, just crazy ambition. So they're just starting out. It just always feels like they're starting out with what they're doing. And I think, you know, Square has some of that. I'm not going to bag on Square because they're, I think they're a great company. Their cash app is amazing. It's getting traction. People don't understand how fast some of the stuff happens with Venmo and cash app and how adoption happens, you know, with the masses. And they still have a lot of international expansion. Um, I think sometimes I, I get, uh, I won't say tripped up, but people get confused because I might be a little bit critical of a company and they interpret it as if like I'm critical, but that's not my, my paradigm. My paradigm mm -hmm. is the, is this a 10 X generational company? Is this like the best of the best of the best company? And I might be critical if they aren't the best of the best of the best, but they might be a fantastic company. They might be even a great investment, right? But I'm just critical because I'm looking for something else. You know, yeah. I'm not looking for a basket of 50 companies to hold and you know, diversify and do all this stuff. And so my, Um, the way I, I look at things is just a little different. So in that sense, I think Square is a great company, fantastic in many different ways. I still hold the stock, but are they that 10X generational company that I'm doubling down? Um, yeah, they haven't proved that. Um, maybe with, without Stripe, if there was no Stripe, I would be more, you know, I think, uh, tempted to think that way. What, what would need to change for Square for you to have that, that higher convic conviction? 
Yeah, I think a lot of these things is, is this hard to change because first principle wise, um, it comes down to goals and ambition and what you stand for and how you see the world. Um, and so this is another kind of crazy thought out there is a lot of it is paradigm, you know, which is you go down to your entire worldview because a lot of times your goals, let's say the CEO's goals and strategy and what they're trying to do ambitious wise, ambition wise, it comes down to their view of the entire world. But your paradigm also is impacted by your values and your upbringing and so many different personal things. It's really hard to change that. Like for example, when you look at Elon Musk wanting to go to Mars or you know transition the world to sustainable energy, it's like that stuff, that type of, that level of goal and ambition, it's like where does that come from? You know, is it something that, that he thinks is opportunistic, will make him a lot of money and therefore he wants to do it? Or is it something more deeper foundational in how he thinks and val- his value system, right? Yeah. His world perspective, historic perspective, how he values even his own time and priorities and how he views himself, his own view on identity, right? How he views his own existence. There's so many factors involved determining his true ambition. You can have a fake ambition. You can kind of have ambition. You say that you're doing like, I want to do this and this, or this emotional ambition, but to have this really long lasting ambition that you carry for many, many years, you stake your claim and you rally thousands and thousands of people around this vision and this ambition. That's a different level. It really needs to be, you know, out of authenticity. Um, yeah, it's extremely difficult to change. And I don't, I don't even, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's just, um, it's, it's just extremely uh, difficult. And that's where, that's where, um, I think, yeah, getting to know the, the company founders, the CEOs that you're invested in, to me, that's, that's so, so crucial. Yeah. No, I think also for Square, you can see, obviously, Jackie's CEO of Square and Twitter. You can actually compare like Twitter could have had a huge potential if they, I don't know, they try to monetize it, maybe grow. I think Twitter spaces is something that has been talked about for years now, but nothing yeah. has happened. And I think with, with Square, they're also like, it's sluggish with maybe the direct payment pay with Cash App, for example, is something that I would have put number one on, on the list because like beating PayPal at their own game is probably something that would push Square towards that half a trillion, maybe even a trillion in 10 years uh, time. All of these things that are just taking maybe too much time because, I don't know, maybe the CEO is, is between those two companies, might have to quit Twitter to focus more on Square or I don't know what's what's going to happen. But I agree with you that to have that ability to to grow and grow and be better than the others has to start with, with the CEO and, and his goals. Yeah. I mean, actually, so I want to balance the Square discussion out a bit because Square does have an amazing vision. And it's actually very ambitious. Um, and the thing that makes Square Square and makes Jack Dorsey Jack Dorsey is he really, in the deepest part of his heart, he believes in justice and yeah, financial freedom is, is the goal, basically. Yeah, he wants the democratization of finances, meaning he's very, very bothered by how the poor are don't have the same access to financial services mm-hmm. that allow them to, let's say, improve their financial situation. And so for Jack Dorsey, he's very, very motivated to, to see Square as a, it's almost um, like activism. 
you know, and to do it in a financial way. And it's interesting. He sees Twitter the same way, but in terms of media. So Jack Dorsey's view on Twitter is he wants it to be the democratization of media broadcasting. So if you want to, let's say, have a media broadcast presence, back in the day, you had to have a TV station or a newspaper or a magazine. But Jack Dorsey's saying, hey, there's this technology where you anyone with hustle and creativity and content can create a broadcast media channel and grow that channel over time. And he sees ultimately that's good, ultimately to democratize kind of the ability to create a media broadcast channel is good for freedoms. It's good actually, you know, to level inequality because a lot of times broadcast determines also the size of the business. It's very related. And so Jack Dorsey is all about, you know, that democratization, right? And to try to fight the kind of inequality in the system toward justice and opportunity. So when you look at Square in that angle, it's actually very quite ambitious in a lot of ways. And it's a quite noble goal. And they're mm-hmm. doing a lot of great things with Square App and all of the financial services they're adding, really helping people get access to to you know, investing and savings and all the stuff that they didn't have before. And they're doing a great job. And so in, I am a believer in Square, in their vision, right? And and I don't want to make it seem like in any way that I'm discounting what yeah, they're doing because sure. they're doing amazing things. Yeah. No, yeah, it makes sense. Like, I think also the fact that he wants to go to Africa and see how everything works there and maybe put Square into Africa and help, help those, those poor countries like in the United States, targeted the unbanked, probably is going to do the same, hopefully doing the same in Africa. Um, I think Square is also one, I think my top three holdings. So I do I do see a, a bright future for, for them, but saying from investor point of view, they might want to accelerate a, a bit because competition is here and, and even more, more are coming. But yeah. moving now in, into a, a different company, I think we both hold in, in high regards, which is Lemonade. I think we both talked to, to the CEO. Um, what's... What's your, your thoughts on Lemonade as, as of today? Yeah, so um, I got into Lemonade after watching the CFO speak. So as much as I was impressed by Daniel Schreiber, the CEO, and Shai Winogar, the, the chief product officer, um, the person who impressed me the most was actually Tim, uh, T- Tim Bixby, Bixby. He just kind of presented the business model case, and um, he 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 pared it down to a way where it was, I, I felt pretty compelling. And I, I kind of feel bad that the video that I watched, it doesn't seem to be public. I'm tempted to, to just publish it, but it was a Barclays um, investor mm. conference. It was kind of something, you know, um, online, but he kind of went over an hour, really, you know, breaking it down. And that was the first time where I'm like, wow, okay, fine. I get it. Like, you guys are, 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 you guys are, you guys know what you're doing. And a, a few things stuck out from that conversation was one is lemonade is, is in control of their growth. They're completely just, it's a, it's a switch and it's all about how much they pay for advertising to get conversions into, to get more revenue. And the economics, the unit economics of, the, of those switch of that switch makes sense. At least according to CFO, he's like, Hey, in two years, we can make our money back of each customer we acquire and then we get kind of this lifetime, you know, revenue yeah. from the customers who stick around. And so um, financially, he's like, this is a no brainer. You just keep on, you know, 
spending money to acquire and you make that money back, you know, and you continue to grow. And so it's just purely how fast they want to grow. And I think looking at it from that financial perspective, people are like, oh my gosh, how is lemonade growing? But it's really like they could grow faster, they could grow slower. It's it's really, you know, they're in control of that product. I think that's um, one of the big things I think that stuck out for Lemonade. Um, the second thing is I love companies who have grand ambition, like I've, just like we were talking about earlier. And when you hear Lemonade, you know, their CEO and also their CTO, um, and you hear grand ambition, right? Yeah. Like they talk about, insurance companies and wanting to dominate or be one of the biggest players in this whole insurance industry, one of the biggest industries in the world. And I love that talk, you know, it's like, that's fantastic. I'm like, that's, that's what, Hey man, like if anyone out there has, you know, has found any CEO or founder that has that type of ambition, like, please direct message me on Twitter. Like my DMS are open. Let me know, you know, who these CEOs are, because I want to look at, I want to look, look into these guys, right? Who are these guys who are, you know, who are the next Elon Musk in the yeah. sense of their ambition, the next Steve Jobs, the next Jeff Bezos, et cetera. Um, Shopify also has grand ambitions. Um, but yeah, when I look at Lemony, I'm like, whoa, man, you guys, you guys talk the talk at least. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you guys have the ambition. So let's see if you guys walk the walk. Let's see like, okay, what is your strategy? What is your product excellence, right? Can you defend that product superior over time? You know, do the unit economics, does the business model make sense? And let's go from there, right? So um, that's the second thing I think the Lemony that just sticks out. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, ambition doesn't tell the whole story, but um, you can't, you can't conjure that up um, later on. You know, you've got to have that from the beginning. And so, yeah. uh, Daniel and Shai really shine in that. And then, third thing is, I'm just using the product myself, getting quotes, um, and you know, doing my own research on you know how people are using it and seeing reviews and all this stuff, and also getting experience through, you know, traditional insurances. Like for example, you know, um, we were getting a quote, we did it through Lemonade, we did it through a traditional thing. And it was just like such night and day difference, right? I still think Lemonade still has a ways to improve their trust and brand. And Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the key things is with insurance, that's so important. You want the insurance company to be around when you need them in 10 years and 20 years, et cetera. Being a new company is one of Lemonade's most difficult challenges to overcome because they're like, who is this company, right? Do I want to trust state farm with my homeowner's insurance, or do I want to trust lemonade? Like, you know, and there's a, there's going to be a point where, you know, initially state um, lemonade has to um, counter that disadvantage by either doing a lower price or better coverage or something to, to offset that, the, the brand loyalty and trust that these bigger companies have. But at a certain point, there's going to be a tipping point where, people feel that lemonade has been around long enough. They're big enough, Mm -hmm. you know, all this stuff. They're strong enough where lemonade can offer similar coverage and similar price, but people would choose lemonade over because there's a better reputation for lemonade. I personally don't think that time has come yet, right? There's, there's a a tipping point that, 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 that I don't know whether it's going to be the next few years or several years. I don't need the exact time tipping point, but when that tipping point comes, that's, that's kind of the huge kind of milestone, right? For, for lemonade. And up until that, up until that point, um, I think currently 
Lemony is doing all the right things to try to get there. You know, I actually understand the the other side. I understand the the people who are critical of the company, who think the valuation is too high, et cetera. I mean, yeah, that makes sense in some ways. Fair but points, yeah. yeah, but on Lemonade's side, they're doing what they need to do to do the impossible, which is to take on incumbent and actually match them with trust and brand. And then eventually overtaking them, it's just, you know, that's they just have all the momentum in the world at that point. You know, no one can catch them. Or there could be, you know, people who follow them and stuff. But once they reach that tipping point, um, yeah, it, it's takeoff from there. And um, yeah, and so that's kind of how I look at Lemonade. Um, I think there are definitely, um, I always look at things from both sides. You know, I see a great potential, but there are risk factors too. Like, for example, recently um, the CEO and CTO, the other co-founder, Shai, had, they've sold a, a good amount of their personal, of their shares. And that is a concern. I mean, that, I mean, some people, some bulls will be like, oh, I don't care, you know, like it doesn't matter. Like, but to me, I care about stuff like, uh, like that. All that stuff factors in. I take it seriously. I, I take both mm-hmm. sides very seriously. Um, and they have sold a decent amount. I want to hear more about that. You know, I want to hear um, why they've sold, what their thinking is. And um, yeah, if that's a factor. Yeah, that makes sense. Like also from the critical side when, even but even when people say Lemonade is just an insurance company, if you look at insurance company in the United States, those are still companies that generate forty billion dollars in revenue each and every year, and that's just the United States. With Lemonade, which is something very positive from my side, which is they want to be a global brand, want to be an insurance company in the United States, they want to be an insurance company in in Europe. So, let's say in ten twenty years, having those forty billion dollars in revenue in the United States maybe add, let's say, the same thing in Europe. That's already $80 billion in revenue each and every year. So if you're a long-term investor, it might make sense to want to dip your toes in, into, into that, that company. But yeah, like you said, we've talked about it in private, the selling, the insider selling. So why do you think they might, they might sell or why did you think they sold? Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of confusion over exactly how much they've sold. And mm-hmm. when I look at all the filings, um, they have sold, you know, a good amount. Um, and it's confusing because they hold some voting share power yeah. for SoftBank shares. And some people get confused. They think that's indirectly owned, but it's not owned by Daniel or Shai. They only have voting power. So um, if those uh, SoftBank shares are sold, they get nothing from it. They have zero pennies, you know, so they don't have any interest, um, beneficiary interest in those shares. So that's clearly laid out in the filings. Mm-hmm. The only shares that they own are the shares, like for example, Daniel Schreiber owns personal shares and stuff in his his limited uh, company, Dan yeah, company. Dan and, Dan, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, he's, I mean, I don't know the exact current figures, but uh, someone can correct me if I'm wrong in the comment section, but it appears, you know, Daniel Schreiber has sold maybe... 35 to 40%, um, maybe of his shares. Correct me if I'm wrong in the comment section. Uh, Shy seems to be, I think it um, is closer to 20%, uh, you know, plus or minus 5%. So let's say 20 to, 20 to 40% in that range, plus or minus. Um, again, correct me if I'm wrong in the, in the, in the comment section. I haven't studied this uh, closely in a month. I went kind of, a month ago, I went through all of the filings mm-hmm. to look at this. Um, but yeah, you have to ask yourself kind of why are people, why do founders sell? And 
um, there are different reasons. For example, let's say you're older and you might be retiring in five or 10 years, you know, and maybe it makes sense to sell, you know, a chunk now and to sell a bit more over time. And because what are you going to do with it anyways? Maybe you have some stuff you want to do right now, you know, with it. Um, but I think once it gets up to, you know, more than a hundred million dollars, um, which it has with, you know, the CEO's case, um, I think maybe the CEO should address it a bit. Yeah. Say, Hey, I've got some philanthropic, 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 uh, efforts going on. I have a foundation or something I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z for just, just create a narrative, you know, where, where people can understand it a bit better, but I haven't seen, have you seen anything like a narrative? Like why no, I, I hope, I hope to get some answers yeah. during the earnings call, but I, I yeah. doubt anyone is going to ask the question. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just want, I just want clarification, you know, fine. If you want, are doing a foundation or if you're doing something or, or hey, if you want to, you wanted to buy a yacht because that was your life dream to buy a $50 mm -hmm. million dollar yacht or in a private jet, that's fine. I don't care where you spend your money, but I just, you know, it, it would help to understand yeah. that, Hey, that's been my lifetime dream to have whatever, whatever, or, or to have this, you know, house on the, on the sea or something. That's fine. But I think, yeah, if you do sell a third of your shares, please do give some, you know, narrative, yeah. uh, some narrative. And um, yeah. So if you find that narrative, I'd love to love to see it. And I hope, um, yeah, if uh, Lemonade, you know, management is watching that you do a blog post, you know, or something mm -hmm. about what you guys are doing with, the proceeds just so people understand you know uh, what's going on yeah because i think they did a stock offering a couple of weeks ago and then i think daniel mm -hmm. sold three hundred thousand shares which he now has left fifty thousand or something so yeah maybe i don't know maybe they they can say something towards the the, the earnings why most of them like sold most of their shares recently um, that would well, well, he help. still has in his company. Yeah, like, yeah those are his shares. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but those are his own shares. So those are the same thing as his mm -hmm. personal holdings, basically. Yeah. So he still has, you know, majority of his shares. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but yeah, if you compare, like, like, if you take like all the executives together, like uh, Shai, Daniel, I think Tim, uh, I think another guy, I think the the insurance uh, uh, guy also sold probably mm -hmm. a, a lot of shares. So that if sure. if they can address that. That, that would probably be helpful to all investors. Yeah. But regarding the, the stock offering, they, they did it at the right time. If, if you ask me, the price was, was high, probably they saw an opportunity to maybe raise some cash and then grow even further this year. What, what do you expect them to do in 2021? Yeah, I mean, uh, Lemonade strategy, they lay it out. You know, they're, they're doing this geographic expansion, right? Into more areas, more countries, Etc. And they can do that because they've got this software platform where they don't mm -hmm. need boots on the ground. They don't need that many people. They could do it mostly um, automated. Um, and then they have product expansion, which is going into term life, term yeah. life insurance. They had just pet insurance and they're, they're building still their home insurance group. So there's a lot of um, product categories where they need to to grow and then to find their product market fit and really, you know, try to dominate that, those areas. And so um, there is risk, like, do you want them to go into like so many categories or they can't, they aren't focused enough to dominate in the categories that they're in. Right. Um, so you want them to grow, but you also want them to be able to grow in a way where they don't compromise their product superiority yeah. in each geographic area, but also in each product area right so that's kind of the balance that lemonade has to do um 
But yeah, I mean, they've done so much already just in the early stages of, you know, getting their license, setting up their whole insurance companies, all their products and, and trust and brand is so hard to, to, to build with insurance. And I learned this, like, for example, with Tesla, where people don't understand how hard it is to build a car brand because a car is something you trust with your life, right? If there's a major defect, you could die. And for Tesla, that was one of the weak points early on. They didn't have history. And so people would bash on Tesla, any possibility, right? And I learned over time, like, wow, industries and places where your life depends on it, it's really hard to get established because you get attacked and you don't have a history of product excellence. And that's why like all these new EV companies, man, very, very slim chances, right? That these new companies have a chance. Um, But yeah, same thing with, you know, with, with lemonade, that's their big thing. They just need to plug away just like Tesla did in their early years, right? They need to win over one customer at a time, you know, be better than anything else out there. And at a certain point, just like with Tesla, the trust and the brand, just there's a tipping point, you know, something happened probably in 2019 or something, you know, like second half of 2019, maybe where there was a tipping point where people like, Oh my gosh, Tesla, I love it. I trust it. You know, it's just like the whole attitude changed. And then it's just, you know, Whoa, people understand it better. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a battle, you know, and up until that tipping point, a company like Lemonade in insurance, they just need to, you know, battle it out for every customer, every product, new product, you know, every new geographic expansion. So, yeah, I mean, they seem to be doing a good job and, you know, just monitoring them. That Yeah. I think with Lemonade, they also have a big advantage. First of all, a large chunk of their customers are first time insurance users, buyers. And mm-hmm. just looking at the company, just like Cash App, they, they attract the, the younger audience. Obviously, they try to attract the renters first. And then as they graduate, Obviously, cost of acquisition is very low, but the premiums and revenue for in the next couple of years are probably going, going to grow and grow. And that's why, like you said, in a couple of years, you will see that that tipping point is just like a flick of, of the button. You suddenly see a huge increase, I think so, in, in revenue and in growth of the company. But it will take some time. I think a lot of people right now are maybe not as patient as us, but mm-hmm. in insurance, you need to have patience and, and time. Like those insurance companies are here 50, 100 years. Lemonade is just four year, five years old. So in the future, yeah. I do, I do believe this company, and even if, even if it doesn't become the number one insurance company in the world, being in the top five is, is big, big enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so another kind of, um, angle or kind of risk factor for Lemonade, um, is um, they entered renter's insurance mm-hmm. as their first big thing. And it was kind of this unloved and neglected insurance field. The big insurance yeah. companies didn't really want to do much in that. And Lemonade found an opportunity to really provide you know, a decent product, sign-up process, claim process at a cheap price. Um, and other companies, it's hard to match that price because everything requires marketing and customer acquisition costs. And so Lemonade really found their footing in renter's insurance and they established their name and their brand. And that's where they got the bulk of their customers, young customers. The question and the risk factor for Lemonade is, can they reproduce that in other fields Mm -hmm. 
that aren't as neglected and you know that insurance companies really care about and want to fight over right so that is a big question and one of the reasons why i think they did pet insurance next is kind of well they, they did home insurance too but um one of the reasons pet insurance, it seems kind of like another unloved kind of thing. Yeah. Like the state farm really stay up late at night thinking about strategies on how to get into pet insurance. It's kind of like, oh my gosh, pet insurance, like whatever, you know, who cares? Um, so Lemonade loves those type of places, yeah. right? Because they could establish their their foothold um, and grab their young customers and then bring them into the ecosystem of Lemonade products. The question comes now with homeowners insurance and with term life insurance, these areas are people like insurance companies care about. These are big areas. And so what can Lemonade do to, you know, really uh, exert and show product superiority, right? And I think they need to figure this out. Um, and um, I don't know if they've completely nailed it with, for example, with homeowners insurance, they're saying, hey, we're not going to really compete on price per se, you know, we want, you know, to compete on quality and other things, mm -hmm. but you have to look at it. They're at a disadvantage, right? Um, State Farm versus Lemonade for homeowners insurance. Well, like who's mm -hmm. been around longer, yeah. you know, who's going to be along who's, yeah. Who do you want to trust um, 10 years down the road? Um, so Lemonade has to compensate. So they compensate with user experience, with ease of claims, with kind of a bunch of other stuff with maybe, you know, marketing to their existing customers and stuff, but, and um, they're using more human people. Like when we got a homeowner's insurance quote just last week, um, they, they, so someone called us back um, after getting the quote because there were some issues. And so they're using more people mm -hmm. like for, with renters insurance, it's so cheap. They don't have much margin. Yeah. So it's just all automated, but homeowner's insurance, they're trying to make it more, I think more service oriented, right? More, there's a person to talk with. Um, I think it's the right move, but they still need to figure out how they compensate with that trust and brand disadvantage they're at. Um, price is a big thing, especially for a person in their twenties, you know, barely making ends meet with their apartment. They want the cheapest and, you know, um, yeah. renter's insurance or the easiest too. So Lemonade has to figure out, they need to nail it. You know, that's what they really need to do. And they need to nail homeowners. They need to nail term life. So that is the question. Are they going to nail it? So that's the question of 2021 for Lemonade. I think that's what all Lemonade investors need to look out for is, okay, is Lemonade, are they nailing? Are they really showing product superiority with home, mm -hmm. homeowners and term life? This is going to show a lot about whether they can, you know, enter more competitive uh, markets as well. Yeah, no, for sure. That's also why I, I'm waiting for the earnings call to see what, what they want to achieve in 2021. Because 2020 sure. was, was a pretty good year, I think, for Lemonade. They launched pet insurance. They reached that, that million uh, active customers. But that's nice. But now we want to see what's, what's next. How are you going to grow? How are you going to continue to grow? And with life, I think uh, Shai commented on, on something on Twitter. It's actually something that they've been working on for a year now. Like I know, I think a lot of people think that life insurance policies get born in, in a couple of months, but I think they, they already know what they want to do in 2022. If they're going to car insurance, yes or no, I don't know. Daniel maybe didn't want to hint something, but I would like to see how they reach the next, the next billion customers. How do you sure. grow again and again and again, maybe increase the, the margins as well, because loss ratios is a very important factor in insurance. 
I think the earnings, I think is in a week or so or two, is going to be pretty, pretty important for, for Lemonade investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm kind of personally, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, um, I'm, I'm a bit cutthroat with, or high standard to some of my stuff because, you know, I will hold, you know, some stuff, even though I'm maybe not happy, but it's a very small percent. Um, with Lemonade, yeah, if, if they can't show me that they can dominate homeowners insurance some way, this is going to change my view of the company. They really, really need to show that they can sh- show product superiority in homeowners insurance, um, also term life. Yeah. And if, if they can't show that, yeah, I don't know, man. It's like, sure, they could be a great company still. I'm not, again, this is the whole thing. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad investment or a bad company or whatever. It's just my standard of that you yeah. know, 10x generational company. Next, yeah. Exactly. Are they going to be one of the greatest companies, you know, in our generation? That's type of standard. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I changed my mind, you know, uh, depending on how the company executes, right. I, I hold them to a high standard. Yeah, no, for sure. I think we'll have to wait two, two more, two more weeks to see where, where, where they're at. 